Space, the final frontier. This is the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. It's mission to explore the solar system, to seek out new observations and data, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now the host of the Observer's Notebook, Tim Robertson. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Observer's Notebook, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thank you for downloading and listening. The Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, the Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast depends upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it going. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon. You can start off by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even for more generous, $5, you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public. For a monthly donation of $10, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's Handbook. And for $35 a month, you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. You can find out more at www.patreon.com slash Observer's Notebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $22 a year. Find out more at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And you can also find the ALPO on Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And yes, this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. And if you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please subscribe. And now, this very special edition of the Observer's Notebook. I hope you enjoy it. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this very, very special edition of the Observer's Notebook. You know, there's one name that keeps coming up whenever I talk to a member of the ALPO, but the person that most uh, motivated them to join the ALPO. And that name keep, keep, that keeps coming up is that of Walter Haas, the uh, founder of the ALPO and our uh, late director. And we're very lucky to have with him today his daughter, Mary Alba. Welcome to the podcast, Mary. Well, thank you for having me, Tim. It's um, quite an honor. Oh, good. Well, we're very glad to have you here. So before we start talking about your dad, why don't we just hear a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, um, I was born in 1957. And um, I remember at a young age, um, probably when I was like three, uh, when my dad and mom and I lived in Edinburgh, Texas, and at the time, uh, my dad was working at the college, uh, the Pan Am College, which is now a university. Um, and then I think his supervisor or boss at the time was Paul Engel. I stayed there about two or three years. And then we moved back to Las Cruces mm -hmm. in, in 1963. And then my dad um, was working at PSL, the Physical Science Laboratory here at NMSU, and um, did contracts as well with White Sands Missile Range, I think on tracking some of the missiles and um, writing up some programs because uh, he was a 
computer program and also a mathematician. Um, went to school here, <clears throat> excuse me, graduated in 1975. And um, on various occasions, um, my dad would host uh, a little get together at the house with the um, Astronomical Society of Las Cruces, where we would have potlucks mm. and general meetings and so forth and so on. That's great. And, uh, let's see. So I, I don't know what else to tell you about me. Um, my dad loved, as you know, um, the universe, the galaxy, the planets, mm -hmm. all the heavenly bodies. I took a I really didn't take any interest into it at all. I was more into horses. OK, um, but that's about it. Okay, great. Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, back in the day when your dad started the ALPO, you know, professional astronomers really didn't have any much regard for amateurs back then, you know, other than what our meteor observing and variable star reports. And he really changed that paradigm with giving publishing actually uh, observations from amateurs, and that you know that really changed the face of amateur astronomy, I believe too. Yes, it did. And I do recall um, my dad spending hours at the dining room table um, putting together the Australian uh, Astronomer or the LPO journal. Mm -hmm. um, of course, my mom helped quite a bit with that. Mm -hmm. And then um, I remember um, helping type in 1975. He had a, a typist that lived a couple of blocks down from us, and I would always take you know, his stuff to her. And then, you know, I was a courier. Um, <laughs> but one year um, I helped type up um, some articles for him. Um, and then uh, I remember in 63 helping him um, and along with my mom and my grandfather stuffing them into manila envelopes. And I was responsible for putting in the renewal um, slips. There was a white one, a blue one and a pink one. And he would put little X's on each envelope to so that I would know which color uh, for the um, prescription rescript or excuse me for the renewal went into the um, journal. <laughs> That's wild. That's yeah. wild. Now this whole conversation we're having today uh, came about because you were contacted by the uh, Astronomical Society of Las Cruces. Yes. Um, when um, my dad was of course a member and one of the founding um, persons there. And uh, we had several, like I said, several occasions of uh, having meetings at our house or at Clyde Tombaugh's house or, mm. um, or Judy Solberg's house. She was a secretary. Mm. And um, my dad continued to be um, as active as possible until his later years. Mm -hmm. And um, I got an uh, email from um, the past president, Ed Montes, saying that they had all voted uh, unanimously to um, name the observatory that was at the Leesburg Dam National Park after my father and mm -hmm. asked if I would be able to participate in the dedication. And that was on February the 11th of this year. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And a well-deserved well -deserved honor, too. Yes, it, it was um, very humbling and honorable that um, this was done, you know, in, in memory of my dad, who um, everybody that um, was there knew of him. Some of them had actually met my father. Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, he did have a legacy, you know, mm -hmm. with um, them. So it was quite an honor. And then um, my niece, um, who's a freelance writer, um, 
I asked her if she would also come and attend. And um, she wrote up a, a beautiful article that I submitted um, to the AOPO and also the um, Las Cruces Astronomical Society. That's great. Yeah. My, my memories of, of Walter were, I mean, I, I'm, I'm your age. And so in 1974, I was a senior in high school and I wrote to the ALPO to join. And I got a very nice handwritten letter back from your dad, which is the way he communicated. And it was just, I wish I still had those letters. Yeah. Cause you know, I'm sorry. My dad was very dedicated to all his correspondence. Uh-huh. Um, it was very important that he, um, would give them encouragement yes. as well as um, confidence. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, um, making sure that they were very accurate and precise in right. whatever they observed. That's, that's true. And that's what I remember about the correspondence I had with your dad is that he was always, he was always giving me encouragement. You know, yeah. I, I was not a good artist when I started out. I did not how to make, know how to make observations, but he was, he was always there and, you know, doing a good job, Tim, keep it up. You're doing this. And it just really, really made me feel good. And I, I had the opportunity to meet him on a few occasions at ALPO conferences early on too. And that was, that was really nice. Oh yeah. Yeah. I went, well, we attended quite a few. I remember, um, during my childhood and then, um, not so much as I got older, you know, in my mm-hmm. teens, but um, we I remember going to San Diego. Mm-hmm. I know we went to Wichita um, and Tucson and mm-hmm. probably some other places that I really can't remember. But um, and if he went to one and we didn't attend, he would always bring a souvenir back for my mom and something oh. for me. Nice. So he was always, yeah, he was always thoughtful and um, he. Uh, he really had a um, a a love for his observations and also those that were also interested in and wanted to um, contribute to um, findings, observations, and also the journal. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason you're here is because along with your communication to the ALPO board about the honor your dad was receiving, you also attached a file. And that file was an interview that you, or not an interview, but a, a lecture, I guess he gave for the Astronom- Astronomical Society of Las Cruces back in February, 2008. That is correct. And um, one of the members who's still active there, Niles Allen, is the one that actually um, recorded uh, the, um, I call it a little, maybe it's a little podcast back back then. Mm-hmm. Of, um of what he, uh, a little bit about him and his life. Yeah. And I'm going to play that right now for everybody in our audience. And Mary, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and helping us out today. Well, thank you very much, Tim. I'm, I'm honored. Um, and, um, you know, just looking back, um, next month, uh, it'll be eight years, Mm -hmm. um, since dad's gone to heaven. And I know he, um, he loved the Lord. He loved the galaxy, the universe, and he loved the men and women that have contributed and are still contributing to um, the ALPL. Thank you very much for that. And now I hope you all enjoy this recording. Thank you very much.
Well, thank you, Niles, for the invitation to speak to this society. And uh, thank you all for your kindness. I think perhaps uh, I might begin by saying that this amateur society is doing some extremely professional work. <laughs> and perhaps there is some significance in that the uh, group that meets at 7 o'clock is called imagers rather than observers. Uh, well, uh, the, the uh, works of, uh, that are going on now have certainly been described already. And of course, at my age, we think of certain differences from amateur society in the past. Uh, uh, several of you are doing work of, of professional quality. See, is Bert around for his uh, asteroids? or near-Earth objects. Fred, of course, told us how to do minor planets in a scientific way a number of months back. Uh, Vincent has plans for professional radio astronomy, I'm told. And there are others, so I'll beg your pardon if I have omitted you. And it's another very significant difference from the past is certainly that amateur astronomy has become a market. Uh, we have can recognize this in the meeting that's been going on. We certainly see it in the pages of Sky and Telescope and the Reflector. And uh, to those like Cecil and me, it's a bit incredible. I think back to the days when eggs sold for five, 15 cents a dozen and the hens were going on strike and not laying many eggs. So we, we didn't think uh, very seriously of buying a telescope for a few hundred dollars. Uh, times have changed, and in many ways we are certainly most fortunate. Well, if you were on the so-called accommodation train of the Pennsylvania Railroad going from Pittsburgh to Chicago, you would pass, the conductor would call out, out stops with some curious names like Canaan, New Galilee, Enon Valley, East Palestine. So then the passenger wondered uh, to the conductor, well, what in the world is next to New Jerusalem? No, New Waterford. <laughs> uh, New Waterford was the village where I spent most of my childhood. Um, my mother kept her high school books, uh, and uh, one of them was a Young's Lessons in Astronomy. It was a kind of simplified version of C.A. Young's uh, astronomy textbook, very widely used, eventually replaced by uh, the uh, Russell DeGan Stewart two-volume set in 1926. Anyhow, I decided uh, that I wanted to learn the constellations, and this, and there was a map in the Lessons of Astronomy. Well, there are star maps, both front and back. So uh, I. I took it upon myself to learn the constellations on two evenings, August 13 and 14 of 1933. Uh, of course, that was limited to those that were visible in the early evening sky at about latitude 41 degrees. Um, I, I was pretty much alone in my interest. Uh, at that time, uh, well, as you know, the shape of the crescent moon in the evening sky varies. Sometimes the horns are pointing up, 
Well, that meant that the moon could hold water. Sometimes they would be pointing more to the left. Well, then the water would spill out. Now, this, of course, had an important effect in a farming community, but I think it also shows a great deal of the status of science at that time. Clearly, whether the rainfall was helping the corn grow was much more important than whether two triangles were congruent or otherwise. <laughs> I, I didn't have much luck in interesting others in the community in astronomy. I did read the few books that were in the school library, and then I went on to the larger library in a town called Salem, about 15 miles away, and after that to Youngstown, which was then a city of about 140,000. And in some fashion I do not remember, I met the director of the Youngstown Playgrounds, John H. Chase. He had a very general interest in science, not just limited to astronomy, and he let me borrow uh, his six-inch reflecting telescope, uh, focal ratio eight. And originally it came with exactly one eyepiece that would magnify, uh, with, as we can find out with a little arithmetic, 48 times, clearly would not show the finer detail on Mars. But I think it was rather typical of the time and of the science at that era. Um, well, uh, I, uh, I did some personal observing, uh, and uh, then in May of 1935, uh, Mr. Chase gave me a very interesting choice. Uh, it was very apparent to my friends and neighbors that I'd never amount to much as a farmer, so he proposed as one alternate one year in college. I had graduated in 34 and had not gone to college. Then the other alternate was a summer with Professor Pickering in the, on the, in the island of Jamaica in the West Indies. Uh, Mrs. Chase had had some contacts at the Harvard College Observatory. Uh, William H. Pickering is probably best remembered uh, today as a discoverer of Phoebe the ninth satellite of Saturn and almost the last satellite in the solar system to be discovered visually. Um, so, so he offered to pay for uh, uh, a couple months with Pickering in Jamaica. And not having any more sense then than I do now, I chose the visit to Jamaica. <laughs> which turned out to have a very great influence on the subsequent years of my life. Um, I have often wished since then that Professor Pickering had been a little younger. He, let's see, 58, I think he was 77 that summer. Uh, or that, uh, as I say, he was best known for discovering Phoebe he also was one of the mathematical predictors of the position of the planet, uh, oh, excuse me, dwarf planet, <laughs> uh, Pluto. Uh, and uh, he, 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 his predicted position was actually a little closer than that of Lowell. Of course, we know now that all the predictions were really meaningless and uh, uh, that Pluto just happened to be there and was discovered thanks to the very considerable efforts of Clyde Tombaugh.
So, um, any, but, I, but it was a very pleasant summer observing mostly the moon and uh, sometimes the bright planets. And I began to have correspondence with other amateur astronomers who were interested in the bright planets or the moon. Uh, and this interest grew. Uh, and uh, eventually uh, I began to write papers for various publications. There were not too many publications then. The main one for American amateurs was undoubtedly Popular Astronomy, which was published at Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, there were a few local periodicals like the Griffith Observer in Los Angeles, and I think there was one in the Chicago era. So my interests gradually grew, and it turned out I got to go to college anyhow, uh, beginning with Mount Union College at Alliance, Ohio, from 35 to 38. They had a nine-inch refracting telescope, which I used frequently. And I also began to correspond with other amateurs of similar interests. Uh, it would have been much more efficient to use email, obviously. <laughs> but uh, if you made an interesting observation, uh, and about the only practical way to tell your colleagues about it was to send them a letter by ordinary mail, maybe email if you could afford it. And uh, what eventually we kind of got into chain mailing, that we would send our notes and drawings to one person, he was to send it on to someone else, he to someone else, and so on. And... Uh, Sometimes the chain worked, and sometimes the chap in the middle decided that he would just return everything to the original writer. I also published a few papers in, uh, well, partly uh, popular astronomy. We also had the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and there were the publications of the Astronomical Society of the Pacific. So I did begin to publish and to teaching. Uh, not much at Mount Union College. After finishing there, I spent a year at the what was then the Case Institute of Applied Science, a well-regarded engineering school in Cleveland, and uh, then two years at the Ohio State University, uh, where I did a master's thesis, which was really astronomical. It concerned the uh, mathematical computation of the orbits of meteorites. Now, uh, if you st studied under Dr. LaFaz, you did not talk of seeing meteors in museums. You talked of seeing meteorites. <laughs> uh, the jingle was something like this. A meteor is a flash of light <laughs> caused by a falling meteorite and usually is seen at night. I hope, I hope this answer's right. <laughs> <laughs> Through all these years, astronomy remained uh, certainly a major interest. And uh, Dr. LaFaz was kind and thoughtful enough that he didn't give me 8 o'clock classes to teach. Well, the normal course of events after getting a master's was, of course, to try to earn a doctor of philosophy. And I received an appointment at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia with this goal in mind. This was in the autumn of 1941. Well, some nastiness called World War II kind of affected these plans for many of us. Uh, 
it did, as Niall said, uh, shut down the ordinary uh, uh, graduate research programs at the University of Pennsylvania. I had a room about maybe maybe a hundred feet away from an 18-inch refracting telescope. Uh, this was actually one of the Berkshire Company's uh, uh, products. It was Lowell's original telescope, which he used in 1894, which was the first operation of Mars that he studied in great detail. He used it again in 1896-7 in uh, northern Mexico, where Lowell said he was hoping to find atmospheric conditions even better than those at Flagstaff, which in his books he modestly described as being the best in the world. I'm not quite sure how you got better than that. However, but this telescope was available, and I used it intensively. I was teaching in Navy programs at the University, V5 and V7, which perhaps some of you have some recollection of. Well, not, not recollection, but have heard of. And, uh, well, it was just irresistible to use that telescope. And it spoiled me completely. <laughs> the uh, Curiously, there was a lot of controversy in the, uh, oh, the early decades of the uh, 20th century as to what telescopes would give the best views of the planets. Uh, Lowell, for example, after buying a 24-inch refractor for Flagstaff, almost always diaphragmed it to smaller apertures, 18 inches, 12 inches, rarely even to 6 inches. Uh, probably uh, told us in some of his past talks to this society. And uh, Pickering actually stated in a published paper, W.H. Pickering, that uh, a 6-inch telescope was the largest aperture that would give you best views if you were living north of the Ohio River or east of the Mississippi River, which I obviously was. So uh, so I was thinking when I went there that I, that I was, had been seeing the planets to excellent advantage. And, uh, well, that illusion was destroyed the first night I looked through the 18-inch at Mars. <laughs> It was a pleasant illusion, but it just wasn't true. <laughs> I was invited uh, to uh, teach at UNM in the spring of '46, uh, uh, where the there was, of course, a very great influx of World War II veterans at all the universities at that time. It was interesting teaching, though, in some ways, in that uh, these were rather mature chaps. They had been to war. They Many of them had families, and uh, they were not interested in the college frivolities of the 30s. They were serious about it. Through these years, I had expanded the uh, uh, number of amateurs that I corresponded with. For, there was, for example, a teacher uh, in Eagle Pass, Texas, a grocer in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, a machinist in Owensburg, Kentucky, so we exchanged letters. And this, of course, uh, took up a considerable amount of time. Um, then, um, uh, it, then I had the idea that perhaps it would save time if we had a newsletter. Uh, we would send out the newsletter to uh, 
these people, they would uh, look at it and they could report their observations and we could combine these observations. And uh, so I had the idea in the spring of 47 that I would send out a, a, a what was really a very small leaflet and proposed this idea that uh, we should combine our observations and send them into one source and I would be the source at least temporarily. And uh, if you w thought this was worthwhile, uh, send me uh, $1 and you will in return receive six issues. I think a first class stamp was then five cents. Uh, this, in my opinion, would save time and uh, enable me, to, uh, would be very helpful in that way. In terms of accuracy, this could perhaps be best compared to Columbus's concept of the size of the Earth. His opponents were absolutely right. It was not possible to outfit a ship to sail west from Spain to Asia. We had the inconvenient Pacific Ocean and the continent of North America in the way. However, the concept was very well received. This became the uh, Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. We had a monthly journal, which, occasion, which for a long time was called the Strolling Astronomer. I, I did not actually choose the name. Uh, it was mimeographed for a time, then it was printed. It was, and most, and after that, it was usually offset. It gradually improved in quality, and the uh, Various mem members of the association would uh, submit articles which would be published. It, uh, it grew in quality, uh, certainly in the quality of the articles. And the association itself uh, grew with, uh, there was increasing amateur interest in astronomy in the 50s. Uh, so, uh, we, um, our maximum the maximum number of subscribers was probably around 850, peaking in about 1962. The Western Amateur Astronomers, primarily clubs in California, first met in 1948, as I recall. And I think that the first meeting of the Astronomical League was about that same time. Eventually, the AOPO started to have annual meetings, mostly with other groups, since our financial resources were extremely limited. Uh, the, the observations that were contributed soon became far too much for any one person to handle, so we imitated what the British Astronomical Association has been doing for more than a century, recorders to take care of uh, different parts of our work, one for the moon perhaps, one for, and one for each of the bright planets and the min minor planets, and I suspect that eventually uh, one of our hard-working uh, section heads is going to start a section on the exoplanets, the, the planets uh, surrounding stars other than the sun. Well, we enjoyed meeting each other, and we would uh, meet some of our same friends each year, and the conventions were held in different places a fair number of them in California. Oh, actually, uh, the, uh, this society is actually involved, and I shouldn't overlook that. Uh, we uh, started out in 51. Clyde Tombaugh was our first president, and uh, perhaps this will be a little amusing. 
there was a year when Clyde and I each had an office on the third floor of the library building on the NMSU campus. So during the coffee breaks, we would talk to each other, perhaps at greater length than Mrs. Gardiner really intended. But he had one cartoon on his door, which uh, I think you might like to hear. It showed a three-story house with a huge telescope beginning with the eyepiece down in the cellar and the tube extending up through the third floor and going out the window in an optically most implausible way. <laughs> so uh, the uh, head of the house is looking through the eyepiece down there and the poor uh, mother of the children dressed with rags and obviously very poor having a coffee break with her neighbor and saying it all started when he wanted to get a field, a field glass for bird watching. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Clyde, of course, was a treasured friend. Uh, we first met in 46 when he had been, invite, had been offered a teaching position at the University of New Mexico I had been teaching there for a few months. He also received an offer to work at, at the White Sand Missile Range on the optical systems that were tracking uh, rockets there, and so he came to Las Cruces instead. <laughs> what brought you to Cruces? Uh, well, essentially also a uh, job offer. I, I, this was in 1950. And it, it turned out that the, the offer it turned into a job in computer programming. Uh, let's see, IBM had just had brought out what they called the card program calculator. This was a machine that was controlled by means of punched cards, and uh, had the it could do two or three multiplications in a second of time, which we thought quite remarkable. <laughs> Um, but um, my professional work for several years was uh, uh, writing uh, programs that would control uh, data relating to missile flights. Sometimes the missile would be photographed against the star background, and then, of course, astronomy came into play in the, that the astronomy was used to uh, determine the mathematics for finding the missile or, or artificial satellite positions. Clyde was, was, as I may have mentioned already, our first president, and uh, the society became quite active in what was called the Moonwatch program in around uh, 58, 59, which was a uh, which was a positional determination by amateurs of the position that of the early artificial satellites. Uh, the, uh, oh, and uh, perhaps this incident relating to Clyde will be somewhat amusing. We, about uh, 59 or so, we had a lecture in one of, in the PSL auditorium by a representative of NASA who was describing some of the early results uh, in uh, observing Mars. And he was discussing its interpretation, and uh, then uh, he, I, I can't recall the details, I'm sorry, 
But anyhow, it caused Clyde to make a remark about the interpretation of these data. So then the speaker said, well, that is a very pertinent question. Tell me, would you be an astronomer? <laughs> Probably the first time Clyde had been asked that for 20 years. <laughs> and uh, the society was active in many ways. Uh, we, in uh, I think it was 68, we hosted a convention for the Western Amateur Astronomers, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, AOPO, and if you call it dog food, you are expelled. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the Southwest Region of the Astronomical League, it uh, went, on, went along very well. The Society also hosted conventions of the AOPO in 93 and in 97. Um, so uh, I have greatly enjoyed being part of it and part of your efforts. And one thing which I guess doesn't get mentioned very often, in 1990, one of our members, Stuart Wilbur, he's no longer a member, I understand, discovered what was the third large equatorial outbreak on the planet Saturn. The, the others were in 1876 and 1933. So, so he, he recognized Saturn was looking a little odd. He reported to Clyde and eventually uh, a few observers on the A mountain saw the feature rotating off the disk of Saturn. Another uh, Amateur saw it on the, that same night, but he decided he would have to confirm it before he said anything. So, our Sturt Wilver was the real discoverer. And it's rather amusing that out of what could be considered five major outbreaks on Saturn, four of them were discovered by, first discovered by amateur observers. So, maybe the role of the amateur is not completely lost. The basic idea, I think what we consider to be the basic mission of the AOPO is to combine observations by amateurs that uh, they will report them to some so proper source where they will be interpreted and research, and research papers will be composed and published if the observation is just known only to the observer we consider that this is really no observation at all. It then, of course, became necessary to find uh, qualified persons to head different sections to take care of the observations of Mars or Venus or minor planets or whatever. And uh, most of them, of course, didn't want a permanent job. Uh, the VAA had one director for its Mercury and Venus sections for more than 40 years. <laughs> Uh, this example didn't follow to her troublesome colonies. Uh, but you're certainly, uh, if you're interested, you're certainly invited to take part in these efforts. And uh, I've brought along uh, uh, s some of our current journals. You can now get it in digital format. Uh, but I'd be very happy if any of you who would care to look at these copies would uh, would do so. And I, oh, on one of them we have Clyde on the cover. Is that the one? Uh, yes, 
There are two copies showing Clyde, which might be of special interest to some of you. He was giving a lecture in 93, and the journal comes out at intervals of, of about three months. If you want to get it online, the uh, rates, as I recall, are $17 for eight issues or $11 for four issues. Traditional paper copy is, of course, a little more expensive. But some of us who are uh, older than we like to be uh, still like to have something to read. <laughs> well, the convention has a number of parts. Uh, there are, of course, uh, talks, uh, some by invited professional scientists, some by amateurs, and I'm a little disappointed that amateurs don't take a bigger part sometimes. Uh, then uh, awards are given, uh, and there will be field trips to features of possible interest in the vicinity. Observatories. Observatories, if there are some nearby. We uh, give out an award for what we call uh, outstanding observational skills. This has been given for, oh goodness, 30 years or nearly. Other recipients include Elmer Reese, whom some of you would know by reputation, uh, Don Parker, who does amazing uh, uh, imaging, digital imaging, uh, Chick Capon, who uh, was on the staff here for many years, closely associated with Clyde, Clyde, many others, some in foreign countries who have made uh, outstanding observational contributions. And I uh, should mention that among its other benefits, the summer in Jamaica brought me my wife. <laughs> Since marriage is something you shouldn't rush into, we didn't marry until 18 years after we first met. <laughs> Very nice lady. Thank you, Cecil. I don't think she ever recovered from her first sight of the mighty Rio Grande. <laughs> she, she, she had read uh, some of Zane Gray's westerns. One of them was called Tests of the Rio Grande. <laughs> well, I have certainly spent thousands of hours in visual observations of the moon and the bright planets. I do not consider myself anywhere near the top of the field. Elmer Reese was more skillful. Alika Herring made, one, made excellent lunar drawings. You may have seen them in the now quite old issue of the Sky and Telescope. Uh, Harold Hill in the, the UK was also very talented. But uh, I have been gratified that I may have made it possible for these observations to be made and published when otherwise perhaps they would not have been. And I think perhaps the chief thing I learned from my summer in Jamaica uh, was that it's important to keep careful records. Uh, so uh, if in my later years an amateur friend came along and said, well, I saw something odd on Jupiter on a Thursday in in November, or, or maybe it was a Friday in December. Well, I simply have no further interest in his effort. <laughs> well, I think I might perhaps conclude um, with what you already referenced in connection with Dick's passing. 
I uh, would hope at the time of my uh, funeral that part of the service will be Psalm 19. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his knowledge. I know that you have different spiritual feelings, but I think there is, in addition to our scientific efforts and measures and theories which will be modified and maybe thrown aside, there is a certain spiritual feeling about a night under the sky. Thank you very much. Well, you've been very gracious. Thank you. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed a little conversation with Mary Alba, the daughter of Walter Haas, and the recording from February 2008 of Walter speaking at an astronomy meeting. I hope it affected you as well as it affected me. I loved it. We upload new episodes of the Observer's Notebook on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really appreciate it. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, Amazon, Echo, Spotify. And this podcast is also on our ALPO YouTube channel. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon. You can give up to $35 a month, where you'll receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I want to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer, for the continued generous support of the podcast. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is in the show notes. If you'd like to get a hold of me, my email address is cometman at cometman.net or on Twitter at, at @observersnbpod. Until next time, I hope that you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening.